What was the, the the organization you were with at the time in Rwanda? Uh, uh, Pangea. Pangea. Pangea, right. You were with Pangea at the time. And I remember calling you up and saying, Eric, you got to get your butt to Washington in four hours. <laughs> I, was, I was in the Nairobi airport when the overhead came. I thought somebody died, but uh, it was Dr. Tony Fauci finding me in the... Uh, in the bowels of the of the airport, but I'll never forget that. That's quite a that's quite a memory. Welcome to the first episode of Global Health Diplomats. I'm Eric Usby, professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, and I'm here with Ben Plumley. It's a real pleasure to be with you, Eric. Yes, I'm Ben Plumley. I'm a global health strategist. I was the chief of staff to the first executive director of UNAIDS, Peter Piot. And look, no bite marks. I was also um, the late ambassador, Richard Holbrook's first AIDS wingman, as it were. And my gosh, Eric, we are coming at this at a really extraordinary time, aren't we? There is uh, so much that we need to uh, lift the lid on and the secrets of global health diplomacy, um, both in terms of these huge geopolitical shifts, but also dealing with pandemics, new and old. Very true. I think this is a remarkable time. We have the COVID-19 pandemic that we are just um, recovering from, uh, not over. And I think that has reminded the world uh, of our interconnectedness, and of the inequities in our ability to prevent and respond to the infection. Now, we've been talking about doing this podcast for over a year, and now we finally got around to getting our calendars together and we can do it. But tell me, what's important to you about doing this? Why do we need to have this podcast? Well, I think that the convergence of the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, with the continued pandemics of HIV, TB, and to a large degree malaria, still being uncontained, uh, those equities in response growing as opposed to narrowing with the advent of the COVID pandemic, it's reminded us that the orchestration of threat matched against resources needs to be actively discussed, and the diplomatic conduit is the best conduit to put that on the table. And, and I really wanted to do this and really work with, with you on this. You and I have worked with each other on and off <clears throat> for a good few years. But it seems to me, coming out of COVID, uh, there is a real need for us to rebalance the conversation between science, the general public, but also our political masters and mistresses. And uh, we can't do any of this in a vacuum anymore. And so that's why the the whole focus of global health diplomacy, to me, is so important now. No, I think that's really true, Ben. The, the, the concept that global health uh, has a political structure on which the discussion occurs is evident, but we haven't worked to exercise the diplomatic machine so it is facile and accurate in its ability to carry that conversation. The need is great because of the threat that is present 
and that the response requires a shared responsibility that brings in other nations to strengthen and to complete the response. Unfortunately, there are many nations that, if left alone, would have an inadequate response. That doesn't even deal with the issues of diagnostics and vaccines and therapeutics, which don't reach the final mile unless there's a diplomatic pathway defined. So that is another real indication of why we need to do this podcast. Uh, don't think we're going to be agreeing and nodding our heads vigorously um, every 45 minutes uh, or for 45 minutes every month. Um, see, you jump right into it. You're too nice, Eric. What you've basically, you, you've, you've basically given our political masters and mistresses quite a pass there, I think. Um, and, you, you know, I've often said that you are one of the most honorable and humble leaders in global health diplomacy. And by the way, <clears throat> I think we both know a, a good number of people who would, who would say that that's not a compliment. Mm -hmm. And I'm really hoping that, you know, at the heart of this, we can really pull from you, tease out some really concrete examples of where we've got things wrong, why we got them wrong, and how we get them right going forward. I am confident we can. Uh, I think that um, I have always been in the conversation with the political leadership that makes the allocation decision. And in order to get that decision made, you have to give the political principle enough room to save face at the same time to hear and digest the intellectual, honest description of what the threat is. If you polarize that individual too much, they will close their ears to your explanation, and it will take uh, repeated exposures to someone else to gain that credibility to begin the conversation from the point where it's needed. So that's the trade-off. But there's a point at which it's uh, a diminishing return. There's a point at which it's intellectually dishonest. And I hope I can identify and explain where I think those points are, uh, because I think it's still uh, important that the individual that's involved in bringing the scientific discovery to the political brain to make a decision on the policy so the program can benefit from that innovation, that chain of acceptance and continuation is delicate and can break at any point, and there aren't many masters monitoring it. So uh, I think it's been uh, a ephemeral personality-dependent process too much, and bringing diplomatic discussion onto the table will allow for, I think, an inclusion of stakeholders who have not been part of that discussion to bloom. Right, and, and I am, so I'm gonna hold you to that, and I hope you will hold me to not being so English, because I I know that um, if some people say you're too humble and honest, people have often said to me when I make a comment in a high-level forum or something, wow, what was it he actually said? Was that an insult or was that a compliment? And so I hope you will hold me to being direct and not as inscrutably English as I perhaps have a reputation for being. I will, Ben. I, I do think that's true. Um, and it's uh, it's a charming aspect as well. So it's not like it's a, it's a negative thing. 
uh, and part of your ability to uh, bring that uh, individual along to agree or not agree with you is that is that. So I get I get the uh, the dynamic, and I think it's something that um, you can count on. I'll I'll keep you as honest as I can with it. Well, especially people don't they may agree they don't know what they've agreed to, which is always a winner. Um, so look, there's another reason we're doing these, and I mean, here we are in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. We're doing this in honor of a really good friend of ours, John Martin. Uh, this is an individual who has played an outsized role from his very earliest contributions at the bench in understanding uh, 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 the antiretroviral molecule tenofovir uh, was really his baby. Uh, from its earliest inceptions, and as he moved into Gilead to take it to the next step, uh, always from the very beginning had an eye on the access to his products, was concerned about that, brought discussion around access and availability into it from the very earliest time. Uh, I, uh, prior to uh, this work, did domestic work. I was the first director of the Ryan White Care Act, which was a PEPFAR of indigent AIDS care in the United States, 72 different cities, and the ability to get individuals diagnosed on the correct regimen and to sustain that ability with a continued relationship with the delivery system was a huge task that I would say John Martin, out of his intuitive appreciation of just the burden of being human on the planet, understood that struggle and was thinking long-term acting, longer half-life, depot preparations long before it became part of the general discussion. So we had a bench scientist who saw an unmet need and saw his responsibility as an individual, as a scientist, and as a company to narrow those disparities and took them seriously as an entrepreneur as much as a as a scientist so i mean with you eric everything comes back to you so i first met john in 2002 i think just after gilead had purchased triangle pharmaceuticals which was the home of tenofovir ftc as it was then and uh i came over to san francisco to meet you at the pangea offices and i thought oh well i'll just try and meet up with John Martin in the process. I was then working for Richard Holbrook as the executive director of the Global Business Coalition. And I very cheekily asked John, so, hey, you know, Gilead going to join the Global Business Coalition? And he said to me, Ben, give me 10 years. We can't afford to join you just yet. So give us 10 years. Yeah. John was an honest shot. He was one of the most, uh, uh, kind of intellectually honest in his interpersonal interactions, uh, didn't have any uh, room for um, kind of nonsense in the discussion. It was always a serious discussion uh, with a clear, um, I think, uh, it you know, issues around equity just built, baked in to everything I ever saw him do. Um, his work after Gilead made uh, its discoveries, uh, resources started to accumulate. Uh, John very quickly turned to what are the issues of access that my portfolio as Gilead must address in making these drugs available. They were critical in the discussion and in the availability of our 
uh, PEPFAR programs to get rid of D4T as the backbone of therapy in most of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa with all of its problems and switch to tenofovir. He made that available. His company made that available through serious sacrifices of profit. And we are forever grateful. Yeah. We are going to come back to the role of originator and generics companies um, in pandemic responses in a, in, in a future episode. So what are we going to talk about in this episode? Um, I know that there is a hell of a lot of news out there at the moment. And the thing that I really want us to cover, I hope, is this really quite extraordinary, how shall I call it, public debate, public bun fight that is happening between federal agencies on the $36 billion question. Where did SARS-CoV-2 come from? Was it a lab leak or was it a natural transmission? And I hope in this episode we can uh, put some meat on the bone to understand what the elements of that debate are, why we're having it now, um, and, uh, and, and I suppose also reflect on the fact that COVID is still very much at the centre of politics. But there are other things that y you want us to cover as well. Well, I, I, I think that is an important topic that we should cover. Um, I think that our ability to uh, understand the um, moment that COVID has put us in in looking at met and unmet needs, uh, the uh, lack of resource reach in the planet, uh, and the lack of a forum on, in which to discuss those differences, those inequities, uh, has become very apparent to us. Uh, the lessons learned from COVID uh, are difficult to apply uh, and find traction in every country that we're looking at. Uh, developed countries uh, being, I think, less able because of the uh, structures of healthcare delivery in developed settings with third-party payers and insurance companies driving those issues, points of access, or closing them, uh, creates chaos at the local level. Uh, every municipality in developed settings, I'll speak specifically about the United States, was in a position of not knowing where to turn to set up a plan to respond. We had a national plan that did not identify the targets or the assumptions that were being made. It put it on each state. There are 50 different states, which put it on every large municipality in each state to come up with the same issues of who, where, what, and how do we move this forward. The inertia in third-party payers and um, insured patients, which makes up 70, 80, 90 percent of the populations in many of the cities in the United States, to engage on pandemic response created a huge uh, moment of non-response in every city that we were involved with. I was involved in San Francisco and California at multiple levels in that allocation decision-making process and no one knew who would be responsible or who should make the final decision. So for three months, it spun around and around, and then people just finally said, we'll do it ourselves, and created 50 different examples of what would be the approach. California and every other state had theirs. Then every large city in each state had their uh, cut at it. That kind of chaos can easily be avoided had we 
had the leadership to say, this is the way we're going to do it. It eliminated everything else that everyone had now of equal importance and chose it or didn't choose it to make part of their implementation plans. What it created was a inability to uh, be um, uh, smart about resources. It uh, precluded synergies from being identified so you could have overlapping uh, areas of impact. Uh, and it left areas unresponded to that weren't even um, uh, themselves calling foul. So chaos. See, this is a global health diplomat in action for you. I said we wanted to talk about the origins and you took us rightly into actually is possibly one of the even bigger scandals, global scandals, actually, that comes out of COVID. We have spent the last 30 years hollowing out investments in our mm. public health systems in the US, in Europe. Uh, maybe we haven't in in uh, countries that are funded by PEPFAR for the HIV and then TB and malaria responses. But it is extraordinary, isn't it, that we don't have the capacity to develop a comprehensive, clearly articulated strategy to say, here's how we're going to respond. And it becomes even more crucial to do that when the science is constantly evolving. And so if you have, um, I mean, God knows how many public health departments there are within the, within all the states of the United mm -hmm. States, but they take the science that they see from uh, the NIH and the CDC, and then they adapt and apply it. And you know, at, at a moment when people are questioning how trustworthy and reliable clinical science and public health is, that's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? It is. It is a recipe for disaster. And I think um, when you have either cities, states, or countries responding to the same threat, the opportunities for cooperation for partnerships is not only there, it's essential to get an economy of scale in the response and to save on the edges and on in the center so it goes farther. Uh, the final piece is to have your data collection systems collecting in your weakest areas. So you are always being given feedback on where those who um, have the least ability to respond how their outcomes are staying with or not staying with those who are strong in their ability to respond. That, for any management oversight entity, is critical to put in place. And it's a political scientific union that has to occur to know where to put it. And those are not natural links in our societies. Uh, and I believe that global health diplomacy specifically is the site for that forum to occur. Well, we're the glue that have to bring these two things together. And, you know, in terms of what works and where the evidence uh, actually shows that it's working, we may find it actually where we least expect it. And uh, I am always struck by San Francisco, uh, the Tenderloin, that has a, I think, nearly 90% um, uh, of the population is vaccinated, including people with mental health issues living on the streets, the homeless. Um, and uh, we don't have the data. It would be interesting to compare with perhaps 
some cities or peri-urban areas in Texas or Florida. Mm-hmm. Big differences, um, big political differences in leadership that is orchestrating the response in those regions in the United States. And it reflects different outcomes in the population as a result. Uh, And it's one thing, I think, for people to make their own decisions about using or not using a scientific advance, a vaccine, for example, taking advantage of an effective therapy. But it's another thing to have large segments of your population, often socioeconomically or racially demarcated, not getting access consistently month after month, year after year to these resources. There are structural barriers that prevent that. There are no conduits of information that allow us to be aware of those inequities and talk about it, be held accountable for it. Uh, And I think it is that bridge between the scientific community and the political diplomatic community that need to be opened up. That's why I think this podcast is an opportunity for us to bring voices that aren't typically heard in the public arena uh, into it because uh, they truly are a forum for a broader discussion to be brought to bear. Which I think is a really good place for us to um, announce who our guest of the week is. Um, On each of our monthly podcasts, we'll be inviting leaders from around the world who have played a major role either directly or indirectly, in uh, building global health diplomacy. And uh, this week, to kick us off, or in this episode to kick us off, um, it's your uh, Grand Rounds conversation with uh, Anthony Fauci. So uh, Dr. Fauci has uh, agreed to uh, sit and have a conversation uh, with me uh, about all the issues that we've briefly touched on uh, just now, and uh, I think he is a uh, one of the best examples of an individual who has been charged for the last 30 years with taking that scientific discovery, whatever it may have been, uh, and moving it to the political uh, layer for a decision to make an allocation and away we go to implementing it. Uh, Tony has been right at that spot for most of his career, and it'll be interesting to hear his thoughts on it. It's going to be an interesting conversation because you are both scientists working in a political context. You, twice for um, Democrat um, administrations, and Tony, as you said, really, for all of his career at at, at NIH, NIAID. And I, I do hope you're going to ask and have a conversation with him about how, what kind of skill set is needed to be able to communicate and move between those two worlds. Because, you know, Tony Fauci clearly is, for those of us on this side of the, um, this side of the equation, one of our real heroes. But for a lot of people, he isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, unfortunately, during COVID became really controversial in ways that I don't think any of us could have imagined. Um, And so I think, you know, the next generation of Tony Fauci's 
and Eric Goosby's and Ben Plumley's are going to have to be people who have at least part of their eye focused on how the broader public uh, perceive and understand what they're doing. I think it's true, Ben. I, I think that um, it is an urgent fact that that translator is critical for the system that we're working in and always has been. Uh, our awareness of the role has, I think, in, enhanced with COVID. Uh, we always saw Dr. Fauci's contribution as being that critical translator, but hadn't seen it played out in such a short time frame with such intensity. HIV occurred over 30 years. Uh, the same things that went for identification, understanding of the pathophysiology of the COVID virus, uh, its natural history, how diagnostics and therapeutics play in. Tony had divided NIAID into divisions that looked at each division was one of those areas, yeah. natural history, pathophys, therapeutics, diagnostics, cancer-related. And each one pursued a line of inquiry that periodically delivered that had to be put into a puzzle that gave us a picture of what HIV was and how it moved through an individual and caused disease and how it moved through a population and caused disease. COVID was a breathtaking example of all of those understandings being accordioned into two years. And because of the science uh, platforms that were built for HIV largely, uh, including the mRNA platform for the vaccines, all built for HIV yeah. and TB, but HIV was the impetus and where the money came from, um, were um, all understood and developed in, I mean, almost 18 months. And you look at that and you go, if we can do it like that, we should do it like that always. If we can do it for COVID, we can do it for every virus that we're confronted with, every pandemic threat, we can put into this machine and pop out with the basic elements of the uh, that give us the tools to contain, hopefully, uh, vaccine being the best part of that. But for those already infected, that we have strategies to minimize progression or stop it or cure it. All of that happened in about two years with COVID, and it is amazing that it did. Yeah, well, uh, not to want to piss on the parade, but to say that I do hope that for the next uh, pandemic threat, that we're not relying on super cold mRNA mm -hmm. um, uh, vaccine storage because, you know, as much as the the story of COVID is the extraordinary Operation Warp Speed-like research that resulted in vaccines and treatments, um, it's also the fact that we were not able to deliver on uh, a on global equity, on a, a solidarity approach. And, you know, this truism that none of us are safe until all of us are safe is, is I think, a real, a real inspiration, a real driver for both you and me. And we were just so far damn lucky with SARS-CoV-2 that it didn't mutate in such a way that um, the fact that the bulk of the world's population didn't have access to vaccines uh, meant that, um, you know, those who were able to have access to the vaccines, actually, those vaccines actually continued to work for them. Mm -hmm. We can't guarantee that going forward. 
Well, Ben, your whole career in one way or another has been issues of equity from the first time I met you. Uh, and, uh, and I think um, that this moment for COVID and the, our ability to not get the vaccine or the therapeutics to where it was needed, could have been needed, uh, is the tragedy of the pandemic. And we need to own the fact that the reason that there were huge disparities in access is uh, largely is is not only dependent on the, the the rich nations not making available resources to move it in that direction. That's true. It's also that the countries, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, are low income countries and uh, are uh, were burdened by COVID did not have the resources to respond and didn't. So it was it was lack of moving resources that you do have around to respond as best you can, matched with waiting for the cavalry to come that didn't. And we're just lucky the virus did not take those countries out. Right. And we will always be grateful for that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I um are you uh are you gonna be asking him any controversial questions? I, you know, um, uh, I will not put him in an uncomfortable spot, but will allow him to take it right up to the edge. I've known Tony so long that I don't need to do that to him. That's all it is. <laughs> uh, but I do, I do get, uh, I think we'll be able to take it right up to where he'll jump into the controversy around, uh, you know, like the Rand Paul attacks and all of that. He doesn't know what to do different about that. If you, I mean, was there a better way to handle it? I mean, you know, um, uh, it's, he doesn't have an answer to that. I've spoken to him enough about it in and during the events that, uh, it was a confrontation that he didn't know how to manage. Like, well, who would? I mean, who would? So not to leave the origin story of SARS-CoV-2. Um, let me put you on the spot. Lab leak or natural transmission through a wet market? So uh, I think that this is a topic that has exploded in uh, emotion and people uh, buying into agendas that aren't necessarily pursuing the greater good. Uh, I think that uh, it's important for us to explore this in depth and to understand as best we can uh, where that virus came from, what's the evidence to show that it could have had a lab origin or not. The looking at sequencing of the DNA, RNA sequences, the looking at how uh, the uh, uh, virus has evolved with mutations, you can backward map what it look like six months ago, a year ago, per, you know, uh, two years ago, three years ago, and have a probability uh, uh, analysis that gives you likelihood of origin. It will never be perfect. It will always be um, a probability discussion, which to someone who's not uh, schooled in probability sounds like you're not telling the truth or not the whole truth or you're, you're hedging on it. Uh, and scientists take comfort 
in hearing probability answers, but the public gets suspicious. And I think with the uh, gain of function discussion uh, that we've seen in Congress and with Tony Fauci's uh, attacks uh, on on his uh, research agenda and portfolio at NIAID at NIH, uh, it got confusing yeah. in that dialogue back and forth as to what people were talking about, what the accusation was, and what the real threat or outcome that could have come out of funding that type of research did or didn't. We've lost a, an, an assessment or analysis of that in, of that final um, uh, question of origin, and it's become, um, you're lying, you're not telling the truth, I don't trust you, I don't believe you, back and forth. Well, we've got a very special message about Tony Fauci in this podcast that we'll come into in just a moment. Um, I think you're onto something. I'm really struck that the the two um, agencies that we're hearing in the Biden administration now who believe it's a lab leak, uh, the FBI and the Department of Energy, it, it sort of speaks to, I think, a really fundamentally different worldview from science, which, as he rightly says, seeks uh, or, or actually finds comfort in probability rather than certainty. And let's say intelligence or broader security uh, community analyses that are rooted in inference and intuition. And um, I've been very interested in this over the course of the last year. We, it, it, on our sister podcast, A Shot in the Arm, I met with the British diplomat Arthur Snell last year, who described this entirely. Um, and, and, and it seems to me that we have to, in, in the case of pandemic threats, science sort of has to be the guide for us. Certainly there are things that, you know, perhaps we aren't fully taking account of and, and need to do so, but science drives the agenda. The other thing I feel, and this is, this is in my recent Medium article, I'm really anxious about this conversation because I think it's a distraction. I actually don't think right now it matters whether the virus, and, and it, no one's saying it, it was created in the lab, rather that it leaked from the lab. Um, the, whether it came out of the Wuhan lab or the local uh, wet markets, for me, hides a much bigger issue. And that speaks to the one health agenda, mm -hmm. which is, as our society has globalized, as there have been such fundamental shifts in population movement, in the way we interact with nature, the closeness of um, our communities to natural habitats, the way in which climate change is driving that even more aggressively, and the way, frankly, we have been really dismissive of um, our role in the environment, we are going to be facing a lot more pandemic threats like this. And um, my anxiety about this conversation, if we can call it that, is that it's sort of it's sort of easy for us to say, oh, it was an evil government or an evil scientist or an incompetent scientist, rather than us having to deal with the more complex, admittedly perhaps still a little bit more ephemeral issues about how we interact with society, how our model of living our commercialist, our capitalist model of living 
applies. And we, we've really got to embrace that because, um, you know, there are pandemic threats out there that we know from people who go and collect bat poo in caves mm -hmm. that are there waiting to, you know, transfer into, you know, do that zoonotic jump into into human populations. You know, it's very true, Ben. And you're, I think it, it is a, it is a more mature analysis to look at the One Health threat and better understand that. What happened as we began to see the need to start explaining what we were observing empirically in terms of new threats from organisms that were never pathologic, caused disease in human beings, suddenly appearing on the front as a disease creator. And you had... Um, disciplines that did not talk to each other in the understanding of an emerging threat in a animal population. Uh, and at what point does that threat threaten to jump into another species, a human population? We haven't clearly defined those lines. We have uh, examples of threats, but we don't have it understood enough, defined enough to see are there incremental movements that occur pre-jump that we can identify as a signal and get in front of on a prevention level. Now, are you saying that in terms of the evidence base, the science? I am. Okay. Yeah. That, that is really significant. It's really significant. And we need to rev up. And you see Davis is one of the central spots on the planet that it's actually occurring this way. Our scientific approach, what are the scientific tools needed to better understand populations of potential pathologic threats, pathogenic threats that reside in an animal reservoir that we can identify that potentially with mutation could suddenly be able to attach to a human cell. We have the cell biology smarts at this point and the, the kind of laboratory tools to define attachment intercalation and integration for translation, transcription of proteins, all the way out to the final protein. We haven't applied it in this way for this problem as rigorously as we can. Resources about four or five years ago shifted, and now those sites of excellence are being created, but it's a de novo creation. We need to catch up to where we are. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, thinking okay so we've got this work to do in the in 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 building the evidence base but how on earth do we communicate that to people like let's say congresswoman um marjorie what's the face taylor green yes yes <laughs> that that's the challenge uh and it's it's not one we can ignore because they remain the conduit through which we access the resources so if we don't learn how to talk to Congresswomen, appropriators in both Congress and Senate, and this goes for every country, not just the United States, we will not access the resources to build the academic infrastructure that needs to empirically lay an evidence base that allows us to, on a probability level, say this is likely or unlikely, or this happened or didn't happen. Because at the core of this, getting uh, an understanding of where that virus originated is important. We should pursue it aggressively, honestly, not with malice, 
but with intellectual uh, curiosity because there are answers there that are going to better position us to prevent it from happening in the future. And there are not a lot of other models to learn from. You know, I'm, I really wonder if we are living in an idiocracy. Um, there was a, 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 a sci-fi comedy movie a few years ago called Idiocracy, where I think someone wakes up in a world that's um, uh, run by people who have no interest in, in facts and figures and all the rest of it. <laughs> yes, I wonder how close that is to reality. Um, but, but, but it really strikes me, back to something you said at the start, scientists find comfort in probability. We live in a world where things have to be black and white, where they have to be yes or no. And, and I guess one of the job of global, one of the key jobs of global health diplomats is to reassure policymakers and the general public that we have to be okay with uncertainty because that is actually the scientific method for everything it is you and i know it very specifically mm. for hiv and the mm. journey that we've had to come on on the last 30 years um but it's it, it's also true for um you know emerging pandemic threats there will always be things that we don't know and the reason we need to trust the science is that on the best data available, this is what we advise, as long as we're all comfortable and understand that that guidance will change. Yeah. It's, it's buying into the system and the process that tells you this is a fact, this is reality, this is a fact that you need to act on. And having a system that continues to collect outcomes, data, that tells us in after the decision that that was the correct decision. You were indeed correct. That feedback loop that's after the decision and implementation is what public health and what public health, global health diplomacy is all about. It's keeping the conveyor belt feeding information we can't deny or ignore into our decision-making process so it validates or negates the decision we made for last year's budget in this year's moment. And you have to have bureaucratic, administrative, scientifically oriented brains looking at that continuously without fear or you corrupt the system and it doesn't work and it won't work that year. It's not like it'll peter out. It'll stop immediately. The conversation you're going to have with Tony, it's part of the UCSF Grand Rounds conversations. This presumably is directed primarily to students. It's it'll it'll yes, students that'll include medical students, residents, fe fellows, and the faculty will show up for this because of the respect and interest they have with Tony in the topic. It'll be um, uh, probably broadcast to a larger alumni uh, group as well. Yeah, and we'll do our best, obviously, and, to, and, and, and to distribute it. I asked that because uh, Tony also spoke at the recent conference on uh, retroviruses and opportunistic infections, and he very explicitly said, look, we're handing the baton over now to the next generation. And I wonder if part of your approach in having this conversation with him is precisely that. I mean, I don't know, do, do you and Tony, did you and Tony imagine that in the course of your careers you would end 
pandemics like HIV. Obviously, neither of you would have anticipated something mm. like COVID, maybe something a little bit like it, but mm. certainly not the political controversies. But are you handing over the baton, do you think? Um, in some ways, yes. Uh, I think that everybody who entered HIV work, you know, in the early 80s uh, was in it for the cure. There was no one who engaged because they thought we should slow the the pandemic or, you know, just slow it down. Everyone was looking for a magic bullet. Uh, and uh, and because there was such a large already infected community, it was therapeutics that really got the attention of those of us who were in front of the AIDS patients. Uh, and that's where the impetus evolved from. It was the clinicians in front of the infected, sick individual that really became the driving force for how budgets should go yeah. toward this and not to some other disease. It was the frustration, the sorrow, the tragedy of all of these young individuals just going out that all of us as young individuals were in front of and feeling inadequate and guilty about not being able to do that because those who went into infectious diseases wanted them. They went there because of the magic bullet therapeutics that yeah. that discipline affords as opposed to uh, oncology where it is a chronic progressive decline management that you really get good at. That's the skill. We were into the magic bullet. You know? yeah. so, so it was a different group and Tony's very much into that. So I think it is uh, a baton pass, uh, but nobody has given up the vision of a cure. Yeah. But um, but the COVID gave us a heart palpitation moment of, oh, my God, we can do it in two years and not 30. That was an epiphany. Uh, no one would have said that pre-COVID. No. Well, Shall we listen and watch your interview then? Please. I think that would be great. And thank you for doing this. I just want to say that Tony Fauci for me is a colleague, a mentor, and a friend. And uh, those are uh, wonderful uh, categories to be, but it's unusual to have someone who covers all three of the, uh, of the arenas. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. Uh, we go back uh, to the beginning of the outbreak uh, of HIV uh, in the early 80s and have been in one way or another walking uh, together uh, uh, along that route, uh, understanding and realizing uh, the um, importance of appreciation of population, uh, accessing population, uh, retaining individuals in care and services, and the trusted nature that that requires for populations to uh, react to government and uh, medical institutions' ability to educate or to bring into care and services. Dr. Fauci has been a leader in molding our understanding of what our responsibility is as a government in understanding the science, the application of the science, and the availability of that science to different populations in our complex communities. Uh, his entire work from the very beginning 
starting from a scientific orientation, the NIH uh, context, uh, always included issues of access and um, uh, what I would say issues of equity long before they were discussed. Uh, the community's insistence in being included in planning and in implementing uh, at first, uh, not something that was recognized by uh, the government agencies. I would say Tony was the critical catalyst to force those conversations and broaden government's understanding of the importance of putting the population that depends and needs these services at the table of planning and implementing. So we're going to go through a series of uh, kind of prompts that I will try to get uh, Tony to uh, elaborate on. Uh, he is free to go in any direction he wants. If he thinks that this is a completely inappropriate moment, I'm, uh, I'm game for him to uh, jump into another arena. One of the remarkable lessons that I attribute to Dr. Fauci is his ability to take science uh, and take that scientific principle and the context in which this new discovery uh, uh, arrives and explain it to a non-medical or scientific brain, the policymaker, who is in the position of having to make that final decision. The beauty of what Dr. Fauci consistently has done is explain these areas so the policymaker understands the consequences, not just the idea, but the consequences of their decisions. And that usually plays out differently in different populations. I would like to ask you, Dr. Fauci, how did you manage situations where the policy was at odds with your recommendations that the principal decided to move forward with, or where there wasn't enough information to give to the principal to make an accurate decision, but time, urgency, necessity required a decision to be made. Well, thank you very much, uh, Eric, and thank you for your kind comments. Um, you bring up things that are at really the crux of the tension that we often face when we try to, as you articulated a moment ago, get scientific principles integrated into convincing a policymaker about a certain policy. Um, you know, when if I can jump to your second question first, I couldn't help but flash back uh, to what you and I would do with things way before HIV, and that is sort of in our medical training. Because there are sometimes, as you know, and being a physician isn't the only arena in which this occurs, but often when you are taking care of a patient, you have a limited amount of information at the time that you have to make a clinical decision. And what it comes down to is judgment and experience all in one to make you decide whether you're going to pursue a certain intervention, a certain diagnostic, a certain therapeutic, or just watch it and wait and see what happens. I found it was the same thing that when we had to make decisions, and it goes all the way back to the early years of HIV, and as most recently as the early months of COVID-19, when we were dealing with a target 
that was not only a moving target, it was a running target because from January to February to March, things or appreciation of the situation evolved mm -hmm. rather rapidly. And we were in a, a position that was uncomfortable, but we just had to accept it and act accordingly about making recommendations when you're not sure of the efficiency of transmissibility. Is there aerosol or not? Do asymptomatic people transmit? Will the virus continue to accelerate and then go back down? What about the unexpected, like the appearance of new variants? So really, Eric, it comes down to a matter of getting all of the information at the time that you have it, synthesize it, articulate it in a way where people can understand what you're talking about. When you're in a scientific arena, I have a bunch of rules for communication, both with federal and government authorities, as well as with the general public, is that the goal is not to impress them how smart you are. The goal is to get them to understand what you're talking about based on the data that you have. So that, to me, is a critical way that you make um, decisions and actions on incomplete data. The other first part of the question is, you know, when you're dealing with policymakers, it really gets back to what I said a moment ago, that you really got to get them to understand the facts and the data upon which you're making your recommendation. And if that doesn't agree with existing policy, it is really incumbent upon you to try and modify that policy. You can't do it, but you have to convince the people who are in a position to modify the policy to do that. And it's really a question of using your powers of persuasion based on scientific data and evidence, because everything that we do has to be fundamentally grounded in data, science, and evidence. Very true. Thank you for that. I think um, people who are, have not been in situations where they are playing that principal scientific advisory role to a principal who's making budgetary decisions have, um, I think, uh, difficulty in understanding at a country level the ramifications. But I have to say that the role that you've played in dialogues around our domestic response to HIV and other outbreaks really informed the multilateral and na international dialogue as it moved forward. And it strikes me as you're giving an answer that your um, ability to be in front of the individuals who are going to use your formulation of the problem uh, is often distant or not available. And you are frequently in a position where your argument has been taken in front of your ability to uh, brief uh, a principal, especially in a multilateral European base. But those individuals are involved in decisions that affect global cooperation and shared responsibility. I'm just curious, Dr. Fauci, what your feelings are in our role as the U.S. government, the largest economic force on the planet, in responding to global threats. Uh, do we have a different role 
than countries with less economic prowess? The answer is yes, uh, we we do. Uh, but there there are certain aspects of that that I want to maybe unpack for, for our listeners, um, Eric, and that is when when you're coming at it from a perspective of a of a rich, powerful, influential country like the United States, and you're talking about global issues, particularly in the arena of global health, that the critical issue is that that there are some commonalities that transcend any country, rich, poor, developing, developed, it doesn't matter. There are certain things that will be common when you're dealing with a global threat like a pandemic. But the critical issue is that you have to be absolutely sensitive to the individual differences within a given country or a different region. Mm -hmm. That's the real knack of it. Yeah. You can't apply or recommend things that are applicable and appropriately applicable in the United States, but may not be completely applicable in a developing country, even though the pandemic or the emerging pathogen is the same, the clinical manifestations are the same, but the circumstances are different. And I think you had multiple years of experience with that, Eric, that you might want to share for a moment with the listeners when you were the ambassador and director in charge of PEPFAR, when the HIV AIDS epidemic was a global and is a global pandemic, and yet there were things that were commonalities that we would apply in Southern Africa and other developing countries that we had to understand the individual um, specific maybe idiosyncrasies in those countries to make it apply. I think that's a perfect example mm -hmm. of how you can have total uniformity in how you apply principles of response to an outbreak. I think the PEPFAR developing world concept is a great example of that. Thank you. Uh, it, it, I think you characterize it well. It, it is an example of that. I think that becoming um, clearer on what a shared responsibility is, uh, we we develop science, we develop innovations, but the uh, the context in which those advances can be implemented are always different and apply differently across the population that could benefit from them. And I really have to smile for you to identify that as one of the central pieces that needs to be understood. Also for our domestic distribution of resources, the same principles are there. The degree of difference from those with and those without ex can expand in different settings, but the same principle is there. I wanted to um, turn just a little bit to the, the um, kind of the never-ending epidemic of tuberculosis. You appropriately um, advanced uh, tuberculosis, uh, natural history, pathophysiology. You saw the need for a better understanding of uh, our mechanism of immune response in the tubercular response, uh, the lack of understanding of that, and how that put kind of our, our corporate pharma response to developing diagnostics and targets at a disadvantage. 
What do you think um, is the reason in this post-COVID kind of re-equilibration as we kind of stand back up from the COVID onslaught? Uh, should we think differently about epidemics in the past, the TB, the HIV, that we didn't completely engage and take out? And how should we think about that as we factor in new threats in the pandemic threat context? Yeah. Like the plate. That's a great question. And I, I'm, I, I, I have an answer that I think some people may sort of, you know, take a step back at. <laughs> and that is that uh, the, the emergence of new outbreaks should refocus our attention on outbreaks of diseases that have been pandemic for centuries. Very loud. Uh, because something has been pandemic for centuries doesn't mean that it is not amenable to the same sort of full court press that you put on addressing a brand new emerging outbreak. And that was one of the things that I tried to do years ago, and, I, and I'm still trying, and you are too, <laughs> um, particularly with your recent leadership in the arena of tuberculosis. I mean, tuberculosis right now, if this were an acute outbreak of tuberculosis with the same level of the degree of morbidity and mortality that we have, we would be responding to it the way we're responding to COVID or HIV or chikungunya or Ebola or something like that. But because of the centuries-long history, we need to have to jumpstart it. It's almost you want to push the reset button on that. And I think we did that a bit a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And we're doing much, much better off now, particularly... You know, we didn't have a new drug. You know the story. I mean, maybe some of our younger listeners didn't appreciate it, but we went for 45 years without a single new drug for tuberculosis. You know, a disease that kills you know, hundreds of thousands of people and a million people and more a year. We didn't have a new drug for 40, 45 years until only most recently we're developing. So we really need to remember when you have what some people refer to as forever pandemics, you know, malaria, tuberculosis, that they shouldn't have to be forever. They can be addressed as if they were a brand new outbreak because in the 21st century, we have brand new technologies and innovations that we didn't have 40, 50, 60 years ago when we were struggling to get any drug for tuberculosis. I mean, that's what we have to do. We have to put the recess button. Yeah, I violently agree with you. So thank you. <laughs> I, I want to frame everything you just said. Uh, the the disparity with tuberculosis is tragic. It's ongoing and it can't be sustained. And you said it beautifully. Uh, what a frustration it has been. And I think um, our global awareness of that needs to grow. Uh, and just as you said, our response to any pandemic threat should not exclude those threats that are already on the table and in front of us. Um, I think that uh, you've um, characterized uh, a one you indirectly explained uh, our role in a shared responsibility agenda uh, that 
the United States and countries that have economic capability have an obligation that we don't talk about much to use that economic strength to support colleagues in countries that don't and, and to work with those uh, leaders in countries to speak to their domestic populations and legislatures around increasing domestic support of what historically has been dominated by donor resources. I think our, our inability to move resources where they're needed and sustain them has to be complemented by the domestic investment that each of the countries that we have been in for many years, with HIV in particular, uh, have to advance their domestic support. Our attempt to do that has been dependent on multilateral dialogues and engagement. And I'm curious with your special perspective that you've had for years now, looking at multilateral, understanding the tension between domestic budget and uh, multilateral budget strain and that there's only so much money. Can you or do you envision a different relationship with multilateral discussions around global health? And specifically, do you see a role for global health diplomacy in that context coming out of foreign service departments, agencies, offices versus coming out of departments of health and human services? I'm curious what your vision, broader vision is over the uh, how we handle these needs and responding to them. Anyhow. Yeah, Eric, thanks. Well, first of all, let me start off by just commenting that that is a really very important, unfortunately enduring problem that we've all met, those of us who've been in the public health arena for decades, is just what you said. I mean, the importance of donor countries getting things jump-started in countries that have virtually no resources, but the ultimate uh, dooming to failure of those efforts if you don't have sustainability at the domestic level. So when you were talking about the broader picture, I think it's got to be both, uh, you know, diplomacy, health diplomacy, as well, you know, from multiple departments, from health departments, as well as from the State Department, from USAID and others, to really engage with the governments and the health departments in countries that if we are going to make the investment, which I believe in many respects, Eric, we have a moral responsibility to do that. And I've always felt that way. There are many people who disagree with me, who feel that we should not feel any obligation to anything outside of our own borders. I, I, I just respectfully disagree with that. But once we do that, we can't let it be a blank check with no re responsibility and no accountability. You know, that was one of the principal concepts that President George W. Bush explicitly told me when he asked me to go and put together the fundamental foundation for the PEPFAR program. He said he wanted to be A, transforming and B, accountable because he felt to make investments over a period of years, and the plan was to do that. We started off with $15 billion over five years yep. to treat 2 million people, to prevent 7 million infections, and to care for 10 million people. Fast forward 
20 years, and it was just two weeks ago where we celebrated the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, we've now invested over $110 billion and have saved 25 million lives. There's no way that that could have been done without the sustainability that you're talking about, because that was one of the prerequisites of making that investment. And sure enough, it was proven to be successful because many of the successful endeavors that were implemented over the last three years in the Southern African countries against COVID were really based on the foundation of what PEPFAR built up. So it's an absolutely perfect example of what you're referring to. It was a sustainability in a country of an investment that was initiated 20 years ago. So the answer is we've got to do think we've got to continue those types of approaches. Thank you. I, I think that um, the need for continued donor support is evident. The need for increased domestic support is evident in every outbreak, especially in uh, HIV and tuberculosis. But in any outbreak, you've got that dynamic, that duo. And I feel that we haven't solidified a forum that allows for resources to be um, identified, shared, and synergies created. Uh, we are much better at coming in with separate bilateral efforts, uh, or even within governments, different efforts in the same city, region, community by different agencies within our own government, uh, almost competing for uh, sites, etc. Instead of turning that orchestration effort back to the governments that we're working in for them to make those decisions about who, where, what, and when. That is so distant in so many of the large resource infusions into governments such as the Global Fund and PEPFAR, Gavi, uh, vaccine efforts that, uh, that are, are revved up around COVID, that I'm worried that we really need to actively uh, relook at the uh, forums, platforms, leaderships, and kind of relationships that multilaterals have not well defined. Uh, so we can do just what you're saying, Tony, in terms of sustaining these uh, resources and these capabilities uh, for or forever, for as long as people need them. As as you look at the uh, portfolio of NIH and NIAID in particular, how would you say um, your uh, the choices that you've made in how you identify needs, unmet needs, research inquiries that should be priority uh, with uh, working groups and uh, of experts that uh, feed to leadership uh, lists of met unmet needs and how to prioritize them. Uh, are you thinking that the NIAID, NIH approach to uh, uh, to the research the to the research effort is is a good one, or is it in need of reform? The basic outlines work. You know, I think for the most part, uh, well, first of all, nothing is ever perfect. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so to say that it requires no change at all, I think 
would be naive. I think for the most part, it is solid. Uh, but the one thing that I insisted on literally on a yearly basis for the 38 years that I was the director of NIAID was that you had to intermittently, and I would do it as frequently as once every year or so, take a look at what you've done and question it. Uh, even if you're really very successful and people are lauding you for saying, wow, what a great job you're doing, you never rest on the laurels and you always figure out a way to do it better. The fundamental core principle of how we planned our approaches, Eric, was to look at two fundamental issues. One, what is the scientific opportunity? And two, how does that balance with the public health need? So you essentially assign resources where there is a clear public health need, where you have either the scientific opportunity that you want to fund, or as we did now retrospectively very successful with HIV in the 1980s, or resources in and create scientific opportunities. That was what we did. Remember, we got, you know, very few people were interested in this new disease among handfuls of young gay men in L.A., San Francisco, and New York. And we had to get people interested in that. And we put money into that. And you may or may not recall, Eric, but I got a lot of pushback from members of the infectious disease and scientific community of why you were pouring so much money into this curiosity of a disease that many people found were going nowhere. What we did is we created the scientific opportunities of a disease that we predicted would have a great public health impact. So those are the kind of choices you make that I try to make as my directorship over that period of time. A remarkable tenure, uh, truly breathtaking in the problems you were confronted with, and uh, impressive. And I and I would underline that in how consistently your approaches uh, hit home, moved the agenda, brought those that didn't understand it along quickly, uh, and your credibility expanded and it was enhanced throughout uh, with with. Uh, uh, one after the other. So truly a remarkable uh, balance you've, you've walked for so many years, uh, Tony. Uh, and the country, your colleagues are deeply grateful for that. And I know you hear that a lot, but I can think of no one who really reflects in action, not just in speech, but in what you've done. Uh, you reflect uh, the best of us and the best amongst us. Uh, the pursuit of knowledge for the sake of it, its application to be available to all who need it, and to fight for that when we don't see that. Uh, and you have always been that for me and for colleagues at NIH, NIAID, people in the, in the director leadership level have always looked to you for that vision. Um, and we're grateful for it. You know, I think... Um, HIV, in many ways, created a choice for infectious disease specialists to go down that route or to go down another route in the uh, in the early 80s. And 
Um, I'm I'm curious how you uh, are reacting to the lack of matching that has gone on in the infectious disease fellowship breaks down to 56 percent in the uh, in this year's uh, match. And I haven't talked to you about this. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. The workforce manpower issue is right in front of us. Yeah, uh, Eric, that's a really a critical point that I've actually um, addressed that in uh, that uh, editorial I wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine about infectious diseases in uh, December of mm -hmm. last year when the New England Journal asked me to do a commentary on infectious diseases. I am extremely dismayed by that, and I think we need to you know, get a group of us and see if we could seek out what the root causes of that are right now. You know, it could be an economic one in that infectious disease specialists, you know, we don't, you know, we don't have a, a gimmick. Uh, we just have experience, knowledge, and our ability, you know, to address extremely important diseases. Um, it, to me, it's almost, um, it's almost paradoxical that you're dealing with the last three years uh, have been dominated by an infectious disease that has essentially ground the, the activities of the planet to a halt <laughs> for a considerable period of time. Um, and the reality that this is something that is going to likely happen again <laughs> because of so many circumstances that have not been addressed to change. Um, and then superimpose upon that what you alluded to just a short bit ago about the ongoing diseases that have been essentially of a pandemic nature for decades, if not centuries. And yet, the normal everyday bread and butter of infectious diseases, hospital-acquired infections, and other types of diseases, both pediatric and adult, I, I, I am dismayed by the fact that we could not fill our infectious disease fellowships. I mean, dramatically, we didn't fill it. It isn't as if we missed by a couple of percentage points. It was really extraordinary. And I think we just really need to get out there and just keep trying to articulate to the younger generation how important, but also how exciting the field of infectious diseases are. I mean, it 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 has all of the elements of somebody whose character is want to identify something, want to do something about it, want to prevent it, and want to treat it. I mean, you know, magic bullets, yeah. the magic bullet group. Yeah, exactly. It just it, it's very distressing. Maybe that's our next endeavor, Eric, sometime, you know, maybe through the Infectious Disease Society of America, who I, I know, Carlos Del Rio is the new president. Yep. Carlos is very much dismayed by this. And maybe we could all get together and figure out what we can do to, you know, to bring attention to the extraordinary attractiveness of this specialty. Very good. I think uh, Carlos is spending a lot of time thinking about this. That's a great idea. 
in, in a second, I think my colleague Jeff is going to ask us a, a few questions from the audience, but maybe I can jump in and ask you one first of all. Um, you know, as Eric alluded to, you've been instrumental in, in the U.S. response to numerous outbreaks over the last 30 years, Ebola, swine flu, uh, the conception of PEPFAR, but also groundbreaking HIV research. Beyond your ID work, your, your rheumatology work is some of the most influential in that discipline, and you're not even a rheumatologist. No, no, you've achieved so much. And I'm curious, as you look back on your career, uh, what are the things that you're most proud of? You know, Mike, I since my career, for better or worse, was is so long, <laughs> I had the opportunity to wear, you know, three separate hats that overlap. One is as a scientist and a clinician. One is as the director of the NIAID, which, as you know, is the largest supporter of basic and clinical research in infectious diseases in the world by far. It's got a $6.4 billion budget. And the third was the privilege that I've had of being the advisor to seven presidents, as you mentioned, that put me in a position to have influence on policy. So if I were to very quickly go through all three of those, I think things that are not particularly well known, but are very gratifying to me, is the research I did, as you mentioned, on inflammatory diseases of blood vessels, the vasculitides, where I developed essentially high remission-inducing therapeutic protocols for diseases that otherwise were uniformly fatal. And then when I switched my interest to HIV, I have been working for the last 41, 42 years on delineating the pathogenic mechanisms of HIV. So that I feel very good about and proud of. In my role as director of NIAID, uh, one of the things that I did among several was to create the Division of AIDS in 1984 when people just didn't want to get interested in HIV. And that that division, which was the, the largest division of the Institute, has now, in collaboration with the pharmaceutical companies, been responsible, directly or indirectly, for the developing of the constellation of drugs that we all use now to essentially get the level of virus to below detectable, not only save the lives of persons with HIV, but make it essentially impossible for them to transmit the virus to others. That has saved millions of lives. Again, that I feel very good about. I didn't do it alone. I had a lot of help from a lot of people. And the last one is one we've already alluded to, to have had the privilege of being asked by President Bush to be a person who is one of the major architects of the PEPFAR program that now has saved 25 million lives I think that's something that not only I as an individual, that would be provincial, but the entire country should be really very proud of that this nation invested $110 billion and has wound up saving 25 million lives, mostly in the developing world, mostly in Southern Africa. So those are the things that we should feel proud about as a country, not just as an individual. You know, people... Um... Makes, it makes me smile to hear you say that, Tony. Uh, people don't realize uh, your really central role in convincing President Bush, uh, helping him understand the moment, the opportunity, and finally helping him make that, that decision. Uh, it's a remarkable 
series of conversations and convenings that at some point when you write when you write your book uh should be a chapter but um a short version of it would probably be of interest to people to hear i don't want you to feel like you need to go on and on with it but do you have any like a a, a shorter version of a- yeah well the shorter version is when i came back from africa and and told the the president that the first step would be you might remember when uh when we when we had neveropine available to prevent mother to child transmission i said that a single dose to the mother during labor and a single dose to the baby could essentially diminish by at least 50% transmissibility if we made an investment of $500 million, that we could probably dramatically diminish mother-to-child transmission. He thought it was a great idea. I presented it in the Roosevelt Room of the White House on the West Wing, and he said, go ahead and do it. And I thought that was it. I thought that was going to be the program. And then just as I was walking out of the room, he grabbed me and said, no, no, wait a minute says, I want you to do something much, much more transforming. So go back to the drawing board and put together a program that's transforming and accountable for the entire population of people at risk for this. And I told him, I said, you know, that's going to be a lot of money. <laughs> and he said very, very calmly, well, let me worry about the money. You just put together the program. So over the next literally eight months, from April, May of 2002 until his stating the union address in January 28th of 2003, I worked back and forth, going back and forth multiple times. When I say multiple, I mean in every week, but sometimes days at a time at the White House, fine-tuning that program with the help of Mark Dybul, who worked with me as my assistant at the time, who also, as you know, became one of the the, the ambassadors like yourself of PEPFAR. So that was an eight-month period. I didn't convince anybody overnight. <laughs> it went from the spring of 2002 to the end of 2002. But thankfully, the end result was that the president, in his great wisdom, bought the program, and now we have it as a reality. And the rest is history, no doubt about it. Thank you for that. I can remember... Uh... Bill Papp and Paul Farmer uh, talking about nurse nurse led uh, health care programs, and uh, we we presented an, a Rwandan Kagali uh, example. <laughs> there were few and far between in those years. Yeah, but but Eric, I, I have to say, since this is a, a large UCSF audience, that people need to know your role in that. And this is a short story that I got to tell because is that. At the very, very end, when they were saying, well, uh, can we really believe Tony Fauci, this white guy in a suit in Washington, tell us what to do in Southern Africa? He says, you got to get some people to get together and come to Washington and convince OMB whether or not this is really a feasible plan and Fauci's correct, or is he just blowing smoke? So I immediately got on the phone and called a few people, namely Jean Pop, who was in Haiti, Paul Farmer, uh, Peter McGenyi, uh, and my good friend Eric Gosby. <laughs> and we came to Washington and had dinner in an Italian restaurant one night. And we said, guys, you got to go to the White House and convince OMB that this is a project that will work. 
And Eric, I don't know, I think you were with, uh, uh, what was the, the the organization you were with at the time in Rwanda? Uh, uh, Pangea. Pangea. Pangea, right. You were with Pangea at the time. And I remember calling you up and saying, Eric, you got to get your butt to Washington in no, I was, hours. <laughs> I was I was in the Nairobi airport when the overhead <laughs> came. I thought somebody died, but uh, it was Dr. Tony Fauci finding me in the uh, in the bowels of the of the airport, but I'll never forget that. That's quite a that's quite a memory. Thank you for that. Hi, Dr. Fauci. Um, thanks, uh, thanks again for being here. I speak on behalf of my colleagues when I say it's absolutely thrilling to have you uh, speaking to our community. <clears throat> a couple um, questions from the audience. Um, how do you rise above the political climate of distrust in science and political conflict as well? Um, and how do you stop yourself from dropping the proverbial tow towel, or perhaps, Lucia, it might be a mic, I'm not sure, and continue to do what is best for everyone? You know, thanks, Jess. That's a question that's, that's hanging over us right now as you speak. Because right now, unfortunately, we are experiencing a degree of divisiveness in our country that is the worst possible element to be uh, essentially pervasive when you're dealing with an outbreak that is historic and transforming as COVID-19 has been over the last now more than three years. And the answer is, it is not easy, but you have got to stick with the data and the facts and the science. This becomes particularly difficult when you are living in an arena, all of us are, of what I call the normalization of untruths, where there's so much misinformation and disinformation there that the scientific method and the scientific approach is given short shift as if it's as invalid as anything else. So, you know, that's not a satisfactory answer to whoever posed the question, except you never ever throw in the towel ever <laughs> you know you just gotta you know you gotta think of that movie the raging bull with robert de niro when he was up against the rope and sugar ray robinson kept on punching him and punching him and he didn't go down you know you don't go down you never throw in the towel on this ever wonderful thank you um, with hindsight being 2020, what are a few key lessons learned and alternative uh, procedures the scientific and governing bodies could incorporate for the next big disease, the next novel pathogen, and uh, to prevent it from coming becoming a pandemic? Um, and in addition, how can we better navigate the political polarization that will inevitably occur? Well, the the answer to the second question is the one I just gave you. Is that you know we are we are facing that and we just gotta never ever back off on the truth in science, but you know the lessons we've learned are, are pretty clear, Jess. It's that pandemics occur; they, they are not theoretical. Uh, they've been with us before history was recorded. We experienced them in our relatively short life on this planet. Multiple pandemics. You know, Eric and I have just been talking about several of them. You know. HIV, uh, pandemic flu, and now COVID-19. So the, the lesson is they do occur. But the other lesson is that you've got to look at it in two general categories, the way I, I, I like to look at 
the response. And one is the scientific preparedness and response. And the other is the public health preparedness and response. They are separate, but they overlap. The big success in COVID-19 was our scientific preparedness and response, where if you look at the vaccine, the decades of investment in basic and clinical biomedical research has allowed us with the new platform technologies of mRNA and the imaging design based on structure-based vaccine design allowed us to get a vaccine from the time we had the sequence on January 10th, 11 months later, to have a vaccine that not only is safe, but that's highly, highly effective in 11 months. I mean, that is beyond unprecedented because that normally would have taken about seven years to do. That was the success story. The challenge that we've got to correct is the stumbling through the public health response, where we realized that we thought we were very well prepared from a local and national and international public health standpoint, and we were not. So the lesson may be pay attention to public health, particularly local public health, because when it comes to public health, it ultimately is all local. It turns into global, but global is a combination of all locals. So that's what we've got to remember. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. Um, there's been a lot of speculation in the media, as you're well aware, about how the pandemic started um, and can be yet another divisive, divisive topic. Do you think it's important to find out exactly how it started and if so, why? Yeah, it certainly is important and you have to keep a totally open mind as to how it happened. But unfortunately, this arena has become highly politicized as you just look at what's going on with the committees in Washington. It, you know, it's it's very much politicized. So the answer is yes, we've got to keep an open mind. We've got to find, if we can't find out, Jess, let's say we can't, let's say we'll never know, then there's one or two possibilities. It was either a natural uh, occurrence and, and a, had a spillover naturally from an animal to a human, or it had something to do with a laboratory leak, if you want to use that terminology. Whichever it is, even though the scientific data accumulated by highly qualified virologists strongly indicate that it was very likely a natural occurrence, but you can't assume that because it could be either. Why don't we do everything we can to prevent both possibilities in the future? That's the lesson. Instead of burning up so much energy politicizing that now, why don't we say both are possible? Let's put our efforts into preventing either of them from ever happening again. Dr. Bachi, we are especially grateful for your legacy of, of honest, sound science. Um, and on behalf of the youth, there's a community that are here today. Let me just close with a sincere and heartfelt thank you for your years of service. We, we really appreciate um, all that you've done over the, the course of your career. Thank you so much, Mike. And Eric, thank you. Love you, my Love friend. Love you too, Tony. Everyone does. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Wow, Eric, that was that was quite an interview, hey? It was. Well, I think there's a lot there we need to digest, and I think perhaps we need to devote a good few future episodes to reflect on the chat that you and Tony had. 
a lot there to think about and to pick up on. Well, that's it for this uh, first episode of The Global Health Diplomats. Thank you very much for joining us. You can find us on all major podcast platforms and indeed you can find us on the A Shot in the Arm podcast YouTube channel. So it just remains for me to say thank you, Eric, and see you next month. Thank you, Ben. Look forward to it.